Matthew's gospel is known to revolve around five blocks uh, of teaching where Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Block one was the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explained the fulfillment of the kingdom. Block two was chapter 10 where he tells his disciples to expect opposition when they proclaim the kingdom. And chapter 13 is block three of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. We've been hearing several parables about the nature of this kingdom. It's not what we would expect, is it? Instead of immediate political takeover, the kingdom of heaven is more like the slow growth of a mustard seed or the way leaven works through flour. From the outside, it might even appear like the kingdom is shot through with evil and our missionary efforts aren't that effective. But in the end, Jesus' parables reassure us that the kingdom will prevail. And today we look at four more parables about the nature of that kingdom. And these last four parables compel us to act on what we learn. Remember, not all of Jesus' parables uh, have the same uh, reception among the listeners. Uh, There are some who harden their hearts against Jesus such that the kingdom remains hidden to them. But for those who respond to Jesus with humility, he opens their eyes to the kingdom. And so as we now listen to Jesus' words, let's be sure that we're, we're hearing with a, a right disposition, a right heart attitude to Jesus. He is the king. Listen to his words starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they, that is the disciples, said to him, Yes, And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new 
and what is old. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. We, we keep hearing this phrase in, in Matthew. I mean, it, it appears four times in the passage we just read. So it's worth pausing to make sure we remember what it means. Right? Is this, is this a specific place? Can you drive there? Are we looking for castles? The assumption in Matthew is that we know some of what Jesus is talking about. For starters, we know the kingdom of heaven fulfills Old Testament promise. Matthew starts his gospel by explaining that Jesus is the long-awaited king in David's line. And to understand the significance of that connection, we need to remember this, this bigger story in the Old Testament. Numerous places in the Old Testament refer to God as king. Psalm 29, verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 47, 7. God is king of all the earth. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve acknowledged God's kingship, his rule. God even created them to image his rule. But when tempted to rule their own lives, Adam and Eve gave in and sin entered the world. And since that day, the nations have rejected God's rule. Now, never does this mean that God loses control as king. Uh, Quite the opposite, right? God proves his kingship by judging sin. God banishes humanity from his presence. God curses the world with disease and death. Confusion and chaos wreck our relationships. God even promises to judge and exclude all evil from his creation one day. But in this same Old Testament story, there's also a complementary way that God proves his kingship, and that's by redemption. God aims to establish his heavenly rule on earth to bring peace to the chaos, to heal all that's broken, to replace the evil with good. There's going to be a new reality on earth. But even more amazing is that he'd also redeem a people to live in it. In mercy, he would save rebels and make them citizens of this new world. Now, shadows of this kingdom exist throughout the Old Testament. But the ultimate kingdom hope was tied to only one who would reign on David's throne forever. Isaiah 11 tells us that this king would would come with wisdom and might... That this king would come with righteousness. With this king would also come a divine reversal of the curse. So Isaiah 35 verse 6 anticipates the, the lame leaping like the deer. And so to encounter this king would be to encounter the rule of God making all things right. That's the Old Testament promise. Matthew begins his gospel with a a big red arrow over Jesus that says, He is the son of David. In Jesus, the hopes bound up with God's kingdom, they, they begin to unfold. That's why Jesus starts his ministry, how? Preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts healing people. He casts out demons. 
He raises the dead. All to prove that his kingdom is the one that will restore all that sin has ruined. And so Jesus can say things like he did in chapter 12, verse 27. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Why? Because the king was in their midst. He had arrived. Now as Matthew's gospel rolls on, there's more to learn about this kingdom and the nature of its coming. It doesn't come all at once. It comes in stages. There's kind of an already not yet aspect to it. Jesus also doesn't establish the kingdom through immediate uh, military power. He, he rejects that temptation by Satan in chapter 4 because the rest of the story will show he intends to win the nations through a cross. The kingdom of heaven is entered only through a relationship with Jesus who gives his life as a ransom for many. That's the backdrop to this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not a realm we, we go to yet, but it is a rule that you can see. The kingdom of heaven refers to God's rule manifesting itself on earth in the person of Jesus and in those who follow him. When their lives begin, your lives begin to be ruled by God's word, people see the kingdom of God. It comes in stages, slowly like the mustard seed growing into a large tree. We will see its fullness when Jesus finally returns, Matthew 24. But put simply, the kingdom of heaven is God's rule. It's referring to God's heavenly rule, where, where that heavenly rule manifests itself on earth, in the person of Jesus and his ministry, later in the church, and finally at the consummation. Now with that in mind, let's consider a few more things Jesus wants us to see about this kingdom. First, in our passage is the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom. Listen again to verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Two parables making the same point. Notice several similarities. In both, Jesus depicts the kingdom as something hidden. Right? The, the treasure, it's hidden in a field. The pearl must be searched for. And this matches what Jesus said earlier about the parables concealing things from, from those unwilling to hear. It's not hidden in the sense that God makes it too mysterious to figure out. It's also not hidden in the sense that it's, it's without visible evidence, right? I mean, Jesus had done plenty of miracles to prove the presence of the kingdom. Rather, it's hidden in, the, in that the kingdom is contrary to the way we often think. Normally, the rich and powerful run kingdoms. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Normally, greatness means putting others down in our culture, lording your position over them. But Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
It's upside down from the way we often think in our flesh. His kingdom is also inside out, right? The Pharisees observe the law externally, but they neglect the heart. They claim to keep the ritual of the Sabbath, but they have no desire for mercy. And so it's, it's hidden from people in that sense. It's not something we expect in the pride of our darkened hearts. But when Jesus changes your heart, when Jesus opens your eyes to see the kingdom, it's then that you discover its true value. You become like the man who, who discovers a great treasure that, that fills you with joy. And it's a great joy that leads him to sell everything that he has. You suddenly become like the merchant who finds one pearl of, of great value. I mean, being a merchant, think of how many pearls he already owned. And yet it's this one that surpasses them in value, sur- surpasses them all in value combined. That's what finding the kingdom is like. By grace, you begin to, to see its beauty and, and worth such that you give everything to have it. Both parables stress that the kingdom is of such great value, the characters joyfully sell everything they own to gain the treasure, to buy the pearl. Now the point isn't to say you, you, know, you buy your way into the kingdom, but, but that those to whom the kingdom is given, they realize that it's of surpassing value. Their joy is so full in what they've obtained in Jesus that it's worth giving everything for You may have also noticed that the the man in the first parable seems uh, to stumble upon the treasure in the field, whereas the man in the second parable is on a quest, right? He's searching diligently. That's kind of the one thing that makes these two parables a little different. And perhaps this is to point out how the kingdom encounters people of all kinds, right? God isn't bound to save only the seeker type by sovereign grace. He'll save whomever he pleases. Right? You, you, you've got a, you might have a man in like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 where he's seeking to know this God of Israel. And you might have the Philippian jailer who's just doing his job one day as a guard and suddenly confronted with the gospel. What must I do to be saved? But whatever one situation, the point is that once you see the kingdom, Once you are confronted with the kingdom by the grace of God, your joy in the kingdom compels you to great sacrifice for the kingdom. Think of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All that he spent his life working for, all the status he had in Israel, all of his zeal as a, as a, a, a religious leader, he says, to heck with it, that I may have him, that I may gain Christ. Or think of the Christians in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, where, uh, where he says, he says to them, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully, there's that word again, joy. You joyfully 
accepted the plundering of your property. Why? The writer of Hebrews tells us, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So joy in the kingdom motivates great sacrifice for the kingdom. One of our practices as a church is to welcome new members after hearing how the Lord saved them. We come to members' meetings and listen to folks testify about finding this very joy. Different stories, different backgrounds, different sins, but all share in the same joy of finding Jesus and belonging to His kingdom. That's where the Christian life begins. With joy over the incredible worth of knowing Jesus. That's why we sing. That's why we gather weekly to take the Lord's Supper. That's why there's laughter at the table when we show hospitality. And why there's hope when loved ones die in the Lord. Christianity isn't first about loss. What you can't do. right? But about the joy that you gain in Christ. He is the treasure that surpasses all others. That's why we can, we can be Christians for decades. And, and it never gets old talking about Jesus. Or hearing about Jesus. Pray that you would have such joy. Pray that such joy would characterize our church. What about you? What is the kingdom worth to you? Are you seeing the kingdom of heaven the way Jesus describes it here? As the treasure worth giving everything for? Do you know this joy? Christianity not only begins here, but but it continues here. Jesus isn't just another teacher among others that excites us. His kingdom isn't just another thing we do among other rituals in life. He's everything. He is the treasure that beats all the others combined. He's infinite in perfection, without need, and in himself all-sufficient. He dwells in unapproachable light, immutable, immense, eternal, Almighty, most pure, most holy, most wise, most sovereign, for whom and by whom all things exist. He is abundant in goodness and truth, just, loving, gracious, merciful, and for our sake, He took on flesh to live the righteous life we couldn't, to die for the penalty we deserved, to rise, to conquer sin, death, and the devil and bring us into God's presence forever where joy abounds and peace reigns and glory will restore all things. There's no one else like Him. He is the treasure that we gain. The treasure we gain in knowing Jesus then leads us to follow Jesus at all costs. So is there anything interfering with you having that kingdom? Anything that you're unwilling to part with in order to gain more of Christ. Jesus' point here is to the incalculable value of the kingdom of heaven. That there are days when the sacrifices you make, you know, you can start feeling like, why am I doing this? Is this really worth it? And this parable reminds you of the great privilege we have. The great treasure we gain that far outweighs any sacrifice we'll make. That's why you hear these stories of missionaries coming back from the, from the field 
and others will surround them and, 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 and thank them for all of the sacrifices they make. And they will say things like, I never made a sacrifice. And the point is, comparatively speaking, what is it to give up everything if you gain the treasure? So as Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Something else Jesus wants us to see. The finality of the kingdom. The finality of the kingdom. Look at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is much like the parable of the weeds back in verses 36 to 43 where Jesus explains how his kingdom doesn't come all at once. Right? Some in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to come and, and bring the end swiftly. But Jesus' point here was to say that's, that's not quite right. For a time, both the evil and the good will exist together in the world. And the same point is made here, briefly. The net, so to speak, has, has already gone down into the water. You've got a, a net, they would stretch it out hundreds of yards in a, in a boat, and they would sweep around the shore until the net was brought in, and then they gathered up all the fish. The idea here is that that net has gone into the water, and for a while, both the, the good and the bad will remain. But once the net is drawn up, once the end of the age has come, then God will sort things out. Stated differently, the the inbreaking of God's kingdom determines final destinies. The parable of the weeds mention the righteous shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But the parable of the net focuses on the wicked. The angels will throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, fiery furnace is but one of, of many images the Bible uses to describe eternal punishment. And we need, we need to be careful with how literally we take these images. I mean, after all, elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the lake of fire. So is it a lake or is it a furnace? Right? It's also called outer darkness. How's there, how's there darkness if there's fire? What, what we need to see here is that these are all symbols, which, which doesn't mean they're, they're less than what they're pointing to. The symbols are only scratching the surface of how awful the punishment really is. And this one, the, the fiery furnace, seems to recall God's punishment on Sodom, where the smoke of the land, it says, went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it's this picture of final and, and irreversible ruin. The only ones who escape are the righteous. The righteous is a title that's given to those who belong to Jesus, who speak on behalf of Jesus. God is their Father, according to verse 43. He has saved them. 
Romans 3 tells us that apart from God's grace, there is no one who's righteous. No, not one. But for all who belong to Jesus, they become His righteous ones. His cross sets them free from their sins. Jesus is now their master. And having been made right with God, they are now committed to righteous things. That can be you. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to look upon His cross and see there the forgiveness of your sins and the freedom from, slave, from the bondage to sin and come to Him. This whole situation is crucial for Jesus' disciples to know. For one, Jesus already mentioned how there'd be wolves in sheep's clothing in chapter 7, verse 15. And so this parable actually clarifies that God isn't going to be duped by the pretenders. Right? He will have the final sorting out. Also, consider, uh, considering the anticipated persecution by religious leaders, the disciples need reassurance that evil will not prevail. God will have the final say. So there's, there's no need to panic when the synagogue starts throwing them into prison. Evildoers will not have the final word. God will. The Lord will deal justly with the wicked. But this also becomes a sobering reminder for all of us, doesn't it? There is great joy in the kingdom. And that's what the other two parables, parables touched on. There's also a great seriousness about it. The kingdom of heaven decides eternal destinies, and that kingdom growth has already begun in the world. The net has been put into the water, and right now it is sweeping. The question is, are you ready for that day when the net draws to its close? J.C. Ryle once said, happy is the man who does not leave these things uncertain, but never rests till he has the witness of the Spirit within him that he is a child of God. Brothers and sisters, knowing the judgment to come should alert all of us to the seriousness of sin. It should make us careful to follow God's word, to be watchful and alert to Satan's schemes. We should think soberly about how we do church and how we interact with neighbors and co-workers, do you sense the finality of this kingdom that is already breaking into the world? Does that finality make you concerned for each other as you fight sin and laziness? How does it shape your prayers for the lost or your, your evangelism efforts? Does it put more fervency behind a, helping a, a fellow church member to persevere? Or when you see someone going astray and on the fringes, to bring them back. Let's pray that all of us sense this finality of God's kingdom and, and then conform our lives to it. Then lastly, Jesus wants us to see this, the disciples of the kingdom. The disciples of the kingdom. Verse 51. Jesus asked his disciples, Have you understood all these things? He's speaking about the parables that he's just explained. Have you understood all these things? You see, in verse 13, if you look back at verse 13, uh, he said, 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Many people didn't understand because of their hardness of heart. But we also learn of a great work of grace in the disciples. He says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So God has changed their heart such that they receive the teachings of Jesus. By grace, his teaching gives them understanding. And so he asks, have you understood all these things? It's like Jesus kind of highlighting the work he's already done in their lives. Have you understood all these things? And the disciples say, yes. Which you got to love about the disciples. Such confidence. And they're still going to get some things wrong very soon. Yet, even with all their weaknesses, even with all the things they don't yet fully understand, Jesus accepts them. They belong to him. And amazingly, he even makes them his messengers. He says in verse 52, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, it's amazing that Jesus uses the word scribe here. Elsewhere, that refers to the religious authorities in Israel. What is Jesus implying by saying this about his disciples? That those who truly understand God's kingdom are not the religious elite in Israel. They are those who are in submission to Jesus. They are those who walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and sit at Jesus' feet and learn from Jesus. Jesus has trained them for the kingdom of heaven. He makes them like a, a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And the picture is that of you know, this generous landowner. Uh, and, and then from his wealth, he's, he's meeting the needs of, uh, of so many others. And by teaching on the kingdom, Jesus is saying that he has loaded up the disciples with all kinds of treasure. The truth of the kingdom has made them wealthy. And now they're able to serve others from that treasure. The treasure he speaks here isn't material resources. It's not lands and houses and, and money. It's, it's Jesus himself as he's been revealed in the scriptures of old and in God's new work of fulfillment. That's, that's how I take uh, this phrase, what is new and what is old. I think it matches the broader teaching of Jesus that started with him saying, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, what is old, but I have come to fulfill them. What is new? Right? It's similar to the, the new and the old wineskins uh, that Colby taught us a while back from chapter 9, verse 17. New wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both, both the new and the old, are preserved. When the disciples learn about the kingdom from Jesus, they begin to see how the old and the new eras in God's plan, they fit together and they inform one another. Friends, your New Testament makes up one-third of your Bible. If you're going to, under, to make sense of Jesus 
and his kingdom, you need to know the first two-thirds really well. We confess that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We confess that he was buried and that he, was, that, he was, that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And they're talking about the first two-thirds of your book. So you can't make sense of Jesus and what his death means without the ongoing witness of the scriptures of the old. At the same time, to read the scriptures of the old without God's final revelation in Jesus will also lead to great error. That's what many of the Pharisees were doing. They read the laws and in it itself, not seeing its temporal purpose until the coming of Christ or how it all pointed to Christ. But as the old saying goes, the New Testament is in the old concealed and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. God's revelation in Jesus has opened to us a wealth of understanding to God's saving purposes. Jesus' kingdom is where everything was heading all along. Jesus is the one who defeats the serpent as the woman's promised seed. Jesus saves humanity as the new and greater Adam. Jesus fulfills God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations. Jesus delivers us from bondage to sin like God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Jesus meets the law's demands as Israel's faithful representative. Jesus brings all the sacrifices and the priestly duties to their appointed goal. Jesus ascended to David's throne as supreme messianic king and he reigns on Zion's hill even now. Jesus pours out his spirit to gather all of the nations he died for. Just like the prophets told us. Jesus is the center and the goal of God's great story. And so by listening to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, disciples of Jesus become rich with a knowledge of God's saving plan. That's why how many times are the apostles who learned from Jesus, quoting from the Old Testament, tying the story to the old, to the old, to the old. Here it is. It's here. It's arrived. Come, believe on him. I'm so thankful that our church is full of people committed to the whole of Scripture. Men and women alike are learning how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. As disciples, many of you have become like this master of the house. You've gained much treasure from Jesus' teaching. But are you bringing it out for others? Are there ways you're you're helping others to understand what is new and what is old? Across the New Testament, you see this steady pattern of, of disciples of Jesus making more disciples of Jesus. Could be elders teaching the church as a whole. Could be faithful men passing along the teaching of the apostles to other faithful men. Could be older women teaching younger women, Titus 2. It could be husbands teaching their wives. It could be parents teaching their children. It could be individuals teaching each other. The steady pattern throughout the New Testament is that we're all teaching others from this rich treasure we have gained in the Lord Jesus. So, what about you? Are you 
drawing from that treasure to teach others. Perhaps you're here today and you don't really know how. And if that's you and you're a woman, don't hesitate to join the ladies' Bible study on Monday nights. If Monday doesn't work, I want you to make that need known to one of your care group members. Seek out a woman who's skilled in the Word, who can sit down regularly with you and show you these connections. There are many here. If you're a man, you can come see me. I'm about to start another shepherd's group this fall. Men's Bible study will also start again very soon on Tuesday mornings. There's also a wealth of resources in the church library just across the way. And Tyrone has done a fantastic job reorganizing things. Really easy to find. You'll have some tours for us soon, maybe? Yeah. Good. If you're part of this church and you've been walking with Jesus a long while and learning how the scriptures fit together, I want to encourage you not to hesitate to take someone else beneath your wing. Find someone who needs discipleship, who needs to learn these things, who wants to learn these things. Find ways to find, find margin, leave margin in your schedule. Don't pack your schedule so full of maybe good stuff that you have no time to teach others about Jesus and how to follow him. All of us need to to pray for such activities to to increase among us. Pray that the Lord will help us take the the riches of His kingdom and train others. Pray that as we train others, it won't become mere information transfer. Right? Pray that it won't become a point of, of pride and becoming puffed up with what we know about the Bible. No, pray that the Lord will use it to open our eyes further to the joy of the treasure. If there's one thing others say of our church, may it be this, that they help me see and treasure Jesus. He is the infinitely valuable one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables. And we also thank you that through the mighty work of your spirit, You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You have helped us understand these things. Lord, fill us with joy as we meditate upon your marvelous work in the person of Jesus. Help us to persevere in following him. Give us grace as a church that we may build one another up in Christ, instructing each other in the word so that we may see him more clearly and fully. In Jesus' name, amen.